Joshua is uh, commemorated in the United States on uh, the 12th of April. We have Stella Benga, who's a very impressive uh, woman from, who's from Austria, born in Austria and survived the Holocaust, and she'll be speaking. And Ambassador Hannah Rosenthal, who's the uh, followed our distinguished guest today, uh, who now works for the Obama administration. She's the special envoy uh, for the State Department on monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. Uh, she'll be speaking, and her title of her talk after uh, Mrs. Bengal speaks will be What Did We Learn? So it'll be, it'll be a special event on, the, on the noon on the 12th of April. And something definitely connected to this uh, situation or, or issue. Uh, we have a speaker tomorrow who I really recommend that you come to hear her speak. Her name is Bertha Kayetsi. She's originally from Rwanda. And she's a fascinating person. She, uh, she'll speak about this, but much of her family was uh, wiped out in the genocide of Rwanda. And she actually raised several of her siblings from the age of 12 years old by herself and managed to do so. And uh, she somehow managed to go on. And she's doing a PhD in Canada uh, in the University of Ottawa on genocide studies and um, is now working on her third uh, novel personal autobiography as well. So she's an amazing person. She'll be here tomorrow and I urge you to come and her speak. And today we have um, an important uh, presentation by Greg Rickman. Uh, Dr. Rickman will be speaking on the Jews of Yemen, the last exodus. And as many of you know, uh, Greg was the first uh, special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. It was a position that was created in, within the State Department under the Bush administration, and Greg was the first person to fill this very important uh, position. Uh, he's actually a visiting fellow at ESA. Uh, his paperwork went through after about a year. <laughs> so congratulations, Lauren and Greg. Um, so we're, we're very honored that he's here, and he is a fellow of ESA. In 2006 to 2009, he was a special envoy. In 2003 to 2006, he was the staff director of the subcommittee on the oversights and investigation in the House International Relations Committee. In 2002 to 2003, he was the director of congressional affairs for the Republican Jewish Coalition. He was the vice president of the Nicholas Denzenhall communications management firm before he joined the government. Um, he received a PhD in international relations from the University of Miami, and he did his first two degrees at John Carroll University. He's the author of many books and uh, articles, and including some very important books, such as the uh, the, a book entitled Conquest and Redemption, A History of Jewish Assets from the Holocaust. Uh, Greg was very much instrumental in uncovering and working with Stu Eisenstadt on Swiss banks and funds that were hidden during the Holocaust and the uh, US government put pressure on the Swiss and other governments to uh, divulge and to show documentation of uh, hidden money from survivors of the Holocaust. And Greg Rickman was, uh, among other things, uh, very much at the forefront of a successful movement to uncover uh, untraced law to this point funds that were hidden from the Holocaust. He's widely written and is published in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, the JTA, the Jerusalem Post, the Aritz. He's been interviewed at the BBC uh, on the Panorama program, for example. He's published on television and media throughout the world. So it's really an honor to have you here. 
And today he's going to be speaking about his very special uh, experience in Yemen while he was with the government. converted Islam in Yemen and forced to marry a Muslim from, from a nearby neighborhood. Nimrah came from the oldest Jewish community in the world. It was a community unaccustomed to the more modern ways of the world, yet it is very, a very vital part of the Jewish world. Uh, on October 31st, 2009, the Wall Street Journal published an article on this, on this effort, what happened with the, with the Jews in Yemen. And they described Yemen and its Jews this way. Many can recite passages of the Torah by heart and read Hebrew, but can't read their native tongue of Arabic. They live in stone houses, often without running water or electricity. One Yemeni woman showed up at the airport when they were going to be leaving, expecting to board her flight with a live chicken. When you hear this, it helps you to understand the context in which Yemeni Jews live and their way of life. As the historian Bat Yeor wrote of Yemen's Jews in, in the book Islam and Dimitude, quote, the Jews were protected by the Sultan or by tribes until the mid 20th century. So lowly was their status under the law that it was as shameful to kill one of them as it was to kill a Muslim woman. If a Jew protected by a tribe was killed, this tribe retaliated by killing a Jew from the guilty tribe. The result was two Jews murdered with no inconvenience to any Muslim. Now it's also important to know that in 1922, the government of Yemen reintroduced an ancient Islamic law, the Orphan's Decree, requiring that fatherless Jewish children be forcibly converted to Islam. Resistance to such practices was punished by beatings and imprisonment. This law, as well as one requiring them to wear different clothing than Muslims, was enforced until 1949 when the Jews left for Israel. Here we see an historic dedication to, to discrimination and forced conversions. It is believed that since 2001, at least 300 Yemenite Jews have been forced to convert to Islam. Remember this fact. Remember what I talk when I say that they're about the conversions. This will keep coming up. In 1947, with the UN partition vote, Muslim writers present, presenting, uh, presented Jews in Aden with the choice to convert or emigrate. And they were joined by the local police force, which launched a pogrom that killed 82 Jews and plundered and destroyed hundreds of Jewish homes. Early in 1948, the false accusation of the ritual murder of two girls led to further looting. This increasingly perilous situation led to the immigration of virtually the entire Yemenite Jewish community, almost 50,000, between June 1949 and September 1950 in Operation Magic Carpet to Israel. A smaller continuous migration was allowed to continue into 1962 when the Civil War put an abrupt halt to any further Jewish exodus until the 1990s, following re reunification of the North and the South. There have also been internal migrations due to anti-Semitic actions forcing Jews to flee from one town to another within Yemen. Now, let's get back to Ninwah. Ninwah had been studying the yeshiva in New York City, and she'd been hosted while there and she was a very, she established a very real and, emotion, and, and true emotional attachment to her family. And upon hearing this, uh, they needed help. And they came to me 
through the Orthodox Jewish community in New York seeking help for her. Now, as his special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, it was my obligation to help her. My office had a global responsibility to Jews anywhere that were in distress, especially those victimized by anti-Semitism. <coughs> now, I needed to discover more about this incident, whether it was isolated or it was part of a larger pattern of harassment and anti-Semitism in Yemen. So in December 2007, I traveled to Sana'a, Yemen's capital, to examine the situation. What I discovered there was a country beset with strife, led by an Islamic fundamentalist rebellion in the north, launched by the al-Houthi Shiite rebel faction, who had nailed a note to the door of a Jewish family of Sada, which is a city in the north, in February 2007, like in 1860 years before, threatening them with expulsion or conversion if they didn't leave within days. We had helped this community back then in February, arranging for prayer books and a Torah to be sent to them because they left almost in the middle of the night with nothing but the clothes on their back. Now, this story followed by Nidwa's case seemed to be only further evidence of a growing problem facing the Jews of Yemen. I also found the government not fully in control of its own territory because of its ancient tribal structure and respected boundaries. When I asked to visit the main Jewish community in the northern town of Rada, I was told that the government could not guarantee my safety there, and therefore, even with government troops, I could not travel up that far into the country, lacking the tribal permission of the Sheikh to cross internal borders. Eventually, I did gain uh, permission to travel to the provincial capital of Amran province, accompanied by government troops riding uh, in a machine gun mounted jeep. Now, what does this situation say for a country that has to negotiate the rights for its troops across its own internal borders? not a good situation, and it shows that they're not in control of the country, which is why we have problems today. What is clear is that the Al-Houthi rebels who threaten the Jews are supported by Iran, and they join their fellow Al-Qaeda terrorists who spread their terror throughout Yemen and across the oceans to the United States as they did over Christmas time, as the Al-Qaeda terrorists did last year in Detroit. Together, they pose a clear threat to Yemen and to its remaining Jews. This is a very real problem for a government that's not, again, in control of all its territory. Most importantly, as Charles has tried to portray through this institute, this situation demonstrates clearly that history repeats itself. Throughout history, Jews have been proven to be the canaries in the coal mine. What starts with Jews rarely ends with them. And once again, the world is faced with a threat from a force that features in its reign of terror a campaign targeting Jews, and then they spread their venom to hatred of others. Now, on my drive to the north, I was struck by the vastly undeveloped, primitive nature of the country. I saw field upon field of khat, K-H-A-T. It's a native-grown stimulant and hallucinogenic drug that is chewed in a wad in their mouth, and they suck the juices out of it, and that's what makes them high, basically. The fields proliferate Yemen and are guarded by young men with guns holed up in small towers in the fields that consume much of Yemen's diminishing water supply, up to about 40%. Mm -hmm. Clearly, they care more about doping up their country than they do about bettering it. When I arrived in Amran province, I was greeted by several dozen armed men waiting to escort me up to the provincial governor's office, all of them staring me at me as if I had been beamed down from Mars. The scene reminded me of those I used to see on television of the Pilo gunmen, 
surrounding Yasser Arafat's command centers in Beirut. It was, it was surrealistic. My escorts, as they were, lined the staircase going up to the second floor of the governor's office. The situation was uniquely bizarre and, again, surrealistic. I realized that I certainly wasn't in Cleveland, Ohio, my birthplace anymore. The governor <coughs> greeted me, and he was firm, and he was imposing, and he offered me tea and assured me that his Jews, his Jews were safe in Yemen, and that despite what I had heard, Ninwa had chosen to marry the man of her dreams, and that there should be no worries. His people, he said, assured him that he had verified this. He did not complain, but he did. He did complain about one thing, that the Jews in Yemen had been receiving money from the United States in aid because they're so poor. But as long as they remained good Yemenite citizens, meaning not offering support for Israel, all would be well for them. Now, upon my return to Sana'a, I met with the, 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 the now displaced Jewish community from that northern town of Sada, and they were living in government housing, and that is to the credit of the Yemeni government, I have to say that. But it was something that our ambassador and myself I pushed urgently following that initial uh, disturbance in February that, of 07. What I heard from these people were stories of harassment. And again, multiple stories of forced conversions of boys and girls and forced marriages. I heard about intimidation, rock throwing, name calling, <coughs> fears for that their homes would be looted if they left them for any amount of time. Um, sort of a surveillance system of little kids running around uh, telling on them to the government if they were to be seen going to the American Embassy or to be seen going anywhere that was viewed as being inappropriate. Uh, I heard about inequality for Jews in the court system of, Ye of Yemen. Uh, for example, the ancient uh, inability of non-Muslims to testify against Muslims in a court or to serve in the government. These people were very scared and they told us so. Finally, I was given a list of some 200 names of people who would leave if they could come to the United States as refugees. At this point, I knew something had to be done. The conditions they were living in, the security situation I saw, the fields of cots, the security, or lack thereof, told me that their time was running out. When I conveyed these concerns to the Yemenite government and their officials, they expressed an understanding, and they assured me that they would do all that they could to protect, again, their Jews. <coughs> Yet when I complained, I complained about allegations of forced conversions and marriages. And I was told very simply by very senior members of the government that, quote, Muslims don't mind conversions. That statement told me that they took the threats not quite as seriously as I hoped they would, and that was all I needed to hear. When I went back to Washington, I reported on my trip to the people, to my seniors, at the State Department, as well as the National Security Council. And I told them something had to be done. These people needed to leave, and we needed to get them out of there as soon as possible. Um, we worked with the embassy staff in Yemen. The ambassador was wonderful, Ambassador Sesh. They agreed with me. They agreed, they, they were with me on these trips, on these talks. Uh, they had seen every day what the situation was like. And together we began a process that would create a visa class for them that's already in law, but create a class for them that they would qualify for, that they could come out as a persecuted religious minority. As the Wall Street Journal article explained, the events of the summer of 2008 
bombing attacks against the U.S. Embassy. They launched mortars against the embassy gates, closed the embassy for about a week. And then several months later, there were, there were mortars fired at the housing complex where U.S. Embassy officials and um, their families live. Now that's important to know because it's not just some random building. These people had to have been followed to where they live for these, for these gunmen, for these terrorists, to shoot at them, to know the target. And then finally, on December 11, 2008, there was a killing of a Yemenite Jew in a market in Rada by a gunman who had previously killed his wife, was in jail for a while, and allowed out. And I, and, and I want to stress what's important about this killing, beyond the fact that he was unfortunately killed, was that the gunman demanded, before he killed him, to Moshe Nahari, that he either convert or die. And then he pumped about five or six bolts and it would kill him right on the spot. The embassy plan was put into action, and by summer of 2009, following my departure from the State Department, some 60 Yemenites used to travel to New York State, New York City, under a refugee class provided with um, uh, aid from the government and, and training and housing. And an untold number more, perhaps in double digits, into Israel. So it's give or take, there's about 100 that made it out. So about 200, maybe a little bit less, remain. And it's my hope that they will be able to leave soon. To sum, to sum it up, it's very simple. Yemen is not a safe place for the Jews there. The longer they remain, the more insecure I believe that they, that they will be. But for a variety of reasons, they remain in Yemen, clinging to a measure of familiarity. They were ancient, they've been there for several thousand years as a, as a group. Clinging to tradition, hoping against hope that they will not fall prey to the strife that afflicts Yemen and what we've now seen in the news is spreading. I hope that they will one day soon be able to join the brethren outside of Yemen where they will be safe from intimidation and attacks like they face in their ancient homeland. Thank you, and I'd love to take your questions because there's so much more that can probably be brought out from the story. Thank you very much, Greg. And, and, uh, just before the questions go, I just want to say that also I have the honor to hear, Greg, over your uh, career in, in, in Europe and uh, in Canada and uh, this is another example of how you've served the position you know, really well. So thank you. It's, uh, thank you. Uh, you've done amazing stuff. So, I don't know too much about Yemen. I'm not sure. Can you tell us, is it a Shiite? Is it a Sunni? Is it, I mean, obviously, it's in the middle of basically a civil war. Is there oil there? And there's a little bit of oil. Okay. There's a little bit of oil. Um, the problem is that Yemen is. Imagine the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula. They're at the southern tip. They're close to uh, Somalia, across from the Red Sea, which has its problems there because it's pirate. It's a pirate haven. Uh, there are a lot of Somalis in Yemen. Um, and with that sort of emigration and an open sea and lack of control of borders, you don't know who's coming in. Terrorists, weapons, money, God only knows. Um, the Al-Houthis are a particular problem because they are Shiite. Government is Sunni. The Shiites in the north are, they, they launch every time it warms up in the spring, they launch a rebellion. But this rebellion has been 
getting worse over the years. And they had the temerity over, um, I think last fall, to cross what is it, a, di a very disputed border with the Saudis. And they grabbed a couple of patrol, guys on patrol. I think they killed one of them. And they wouldn't let them go, the one that they grabbed. And so the Saudis went after them with, air, with uh, their Air Force. And it was a rather pitched battle for a while, for a couple of weeks. Saudis, of course, prevailed. But uh, the important thing is to know is that they're supported by Iran. And the Iranians are opposing the Saudis in a lot of places in the Middle East uh, and beyond. And that pitched battle was an example of a dispute we might hear more about later as things develop. Is there any communication between the Jews who have emigrated out of Yemen and those who remain that you know of? Oh, oh yeah. Yes, very and much so. So could you elaborate then on, on your thinking about why the 200 or, or a major part of the 200 that remain don't want to leave? Um, I think that they don't want to leave, that some of them, I think a lot, a lot of them would, would leave. If, if the ideal situation for them would be they could leave quickly, not be found to have been, you know, by the, the, the kids that they pay, you know, a couple pennies per day to go uh, tattle on them, um, and that they could get paid back for the property. Now, some of you may think I described them as living in some houses. They do value these houses. This is what, and their, and their possessions. Um, Right before the process was created for them to act, right before it actually began for them to leave, the president of Yemen offered them about $10,000 for their homes to move down to, uh, to, to Sana. And they took this very seriously. $10,000 is a lot in a general sense, but it's a lot much more to them. And they wanted compensation for their homes and their belongings. One rabbi, for example, that was there that I met with had a collection of ancient texts. God only knows how old they were and what was there that was looted when he had been out of the, the house for a while. And he claimed he filed a ser very serious and large claim against the tribes who control the area for that material. It's probably put out on the antiques market. Probably not any idea what they took. Um, as to why they don't want to leave, they're scared. They want. They want money back for their homes and their possessions. They're afraid of being seen uh, by uh, the, these little spies and stoned and killed. Uh, it's a great atmosphere of intimidation that they live through. Um, and finally, I think that they don't know anything else. They don't know another way of living. That this is the place that they've always been, they, that their families have been through. And I think that they probably in some way figure, uh, we lived through it before, we'll continue to live through it. This is just a bump in the road, things will get better. But their viability as a community starts to diminish when you start to drop below certain numbers. I would argue that it's not so, they weren't so viable even when they were higher. But as they come down, maybe even less than 200, I don't have a real fix on the full number. But I, I just, I think that they make a mistake as a lot of other immigrant classes have made in torturous times that they feel that it will blow over. 
I don't think this one's going to blow over. I think the Yemen devil is, you know, but when they were offered the money to relocate within the country, was it going to be just some sort of ghetto situation? Um, where they're staying, and where some of the, the Jews from Sada are staying is government housing. I've seen it. It's not the Red Carlton, um, but it's not a mud house either. Is it safe? I don't think so, because there's one guy, maybe with a pistol out the front, who either can get paid 20 bucks to go get a cup of coffee, and then somebody goes in and does what they need to do, or um, they go through. I don't know. Um, the government continually made references to me, rather obliquely, to say, how long do you expect us to care for these people? Can't you go raise money in the community for them? Um, so when we did find a way to get them out, then they then they had another problem. Um, I think part of it is that it's not so much a ghetto, but it's a place that they believe that the government believes that they can't continue to provide for them. Plus, the plus others in Yemen uh, hold it against the government for saying, "Well, why do you continue to allow these people to live in there free of charge?" Plus the stipend. So things are going to come to a head. Will it be a ghetto? I don't know, but I don't know where they'll live. Um, how is the general situation in the country? Is there also support for the Jews? Or in some, do they have, how is the neighborhood, I mean, a general atmosphere towards Jews in the country? Well, the, I mean, I, I, I read you that statement from Bat Yor, who's written this, several good, amazing books on the idea of dimitude. Uh, the reason why I kept stressing conversion is because this is a place that strongly believes in the idea that Jews have their place, but as second-class citizens. And they're treated as second-class citizens. And that's why I also made the reference to their Jews. There's a bit of pride that they, that they have a Jewish community that is there, that is allowed to survive, but under certain circumstances. As long as they don't go pro-Israel, they don't have demonstrations. As long as they don't they don't do anything which rises above a certain line of acceptance, that line of acceptance being second-class status. So when they are moved down from Sada to uh, Sana and put in government housing at government expense, to my knowledge, they're still there. That was February of 2007. We're moving on past three years already. Um, this is not a wealthy government. Uh, I don't know how long they're going to stay there. I don't know how long they can afford to keep them there. And I don't know how long that the people in the country will say, will, will abide by the idea that you're putting these people up. There are only about 40, 50 people in there, but how can you put these people up at your government expense when we have to go pay for our own housing? I was a little confused. You said they were offered $10,000. For their homes. Right. And did, <coughs> these are, now which are these are the ones that are now in Sonic? No, those are the ones in Rada. There's Sada up in the north. They were yeah. chased largely out of mm -hmm. Rada and then and then uh, Sana, right. which is the capital. Uh, Rada, they were offered money for the home. <coughs> Some of them took. I'm not sure how many took them, if any, but it was kind of a ploy to keep them there. And you could also say it was a ploy to compensate them for the trouble that they're facing. It's kind of it's like a double-sided coin. Why was that a to keep them there? Did they have to because they, because there's a pro, there's a there's a loss of face. The government is not plotting to kill them. This is something. This is why I'm saying that the government's not controlling the whole country. They're not plotting to kill them. 
they're not the best in the world for them, but they don't want them in a general sense to be, to be liquidated. And they don't want them to leave because it's a loss that they say that the country is insecure, that they can't protect their own people. So if their people are chased out, if, if their Jews are chased out by their people, they lose face, they show that they can't control their own security, and they look bad. And looking bad is very bad for them in their own country and their own neighborhood. So who offered the money? The government. The government. They offered the money for them to stay there or to leave? This, no, they offered, the Yemeni government offered $10,000 per house hold mm -hmm. for Yemeni Jews to relocate out of Rada down someplace else right. to keep them there. Because if we brought them out, they looked bad. Okay. So, but they got their ten thousand dollars. I can't tell you how but many. But then you said they're waiting for them. So I, I'm. Talking no, that was a while ago. I can't tell you how many have gotten it or taken it. It was sort of a bribe to keep them there, but it was also a sign to say, a goodwill to say, see, we're taking care of you. Uh, about six, six, six years ago, I met uh, a group of Yemenite from Sada in an absorption center in Israel. Most of them were jewelers. Yes. I learned later that some of them went back to Sada. Yeah. Uh, are there still any left there in that place? I can't tell you how many are left. There probably are, there could possibly be a few. My understanding was when they moved them down, there were about 45 Jews. There were about four families. They quite possibly have all been out. Sada is not a safe place. The farther north is a very bad Al Houthi area, and it's been under for several years, been under attacks and a no-go area for the government. So my guess is they're not there. What What are their ages typically, and how do they sustain themselves? Their ages run from newly born to um, generally older, but um, there are some there are some uh, young. I don't, I, you know, 20 less. Uh, but a lot of the kids, I think out of the 60 that came to New York, I'm told that were about 25 are in the school now. So they're under, so they're school age. Um, and the profession, is, as the gentleman mentioned, there are some jewelers, they're tradespeople. Um, that's generally the kind of thing. Just some information. So we were in Hayden for about four hours, which was about three hours to walk. Yeah. And um, the only Jewish presence in Hayden is a very large Jewish cemetery right at the uh, edge of town. You can't get into Yemen uh, if you have an Israeli stamp on your passport. You need a passport without an entry stamp into Israel. Right. And cat is sold at every uh, store in downtown. Yemen, the tour guide, yes, I said we wanted to try it. I didn't mind going on a trip, but I, I was more trip. afraid of my digestive system, so I turned it down. And as backward as they are, there's a pizza hut right in the middle of Aden. Oh, there, I mean, I wasn't in Aden. I was in, uh, I was in Sana and then Amran province and then on the road between. Uh, this is not, you know, on the moon. I mean, there are Western companies operating. There's oil there. There are tech. There, there's a there's a I, there's a tech set uh, uh, tech sector because of I mobile phones. It's easier to, to to go into a place like that and introduce mobile phones 
and try to do landlines with wires and all that. Um, it is, however, you're right in commenting on cot. I mean, I went through the market in, in, in uh, Sina, and you see, they walk, everybody walks around with the little baggies, like the sandwich bags, with full of these green leaves. You'd think it's marijuana if you didn't know better. Uh, but they, 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 and I've seen them, the Yemeni Jews do it too. They sit and they want, it's like chewing tobacco. They just sit and it stays in their mouth. And you know, I saw one guy in the market, his eyes rolled back into his head. They get high on it. Is it a stimulant, like cocaine and methamphetamine, or is it a... Uh, well, I'm not... No, I'm just saying, but if, yeah. you, if you have a country where everyone's just... <laughs> they're all basically, not all, but I mean, they're all kind of buzzed out. They're just kind of buzzed out, and they, you know, it's... it's the, it, what's fascinating is the amount of effort and the amount of money and security put to, to this crop. It's also in Somalia, so there's a, there's a bit of a trade there, too. And some of it gets into Israel too because of the Yemenis. Yeah. Uh, can I make a point? First of all, I never thought that, that I would hear that. Uh, Bakai, but yeah. I, never, I never thought that I'd hear Pizza Hut as a hallmark of uh, cultural so progression. And another point, you know, cotton is actually becoming extraordinarily popular in Israel. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, what I said. It's widely available. Uh, uh, could, you, could you explain the influence? Why, why have things changed? So Jews were living under this sort of uh, traditional Islamic notions of Demitu for, for a long time, for centuries, for generations. Why is the situation more precarious now, in your estimation? Well, What's going on to change the... Uh, what is important, in, in, in February of 2007, when that note was nailed up on that, those families' door, was that it was nailed up by the son of the former tribal leader who had died. So this was a younger guy. The old, the old, the older um, generation. Not that it was paradise, but had some understanding that you know you you you, you went along to get along. You did what you were supposed to. You didn't violate the the, 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 the tribal traditions and rules, and you did what you were supposed to. Remain a good Yemen Yemenite. Nothing went wrong. Well, this new kid, uh, supposed to be in his twenties. Um, I'm showing my age. Uh, didn't understand or appreciate these traditional rules, and he decided to, you know, he's the new guy in town, and he wants to make a mark on his rule, and he's tied up either directly or somehow with the Alhudis, and he kind of broke the tribal rules. And it becomes, it's like, you know, Somebody made a joke to me, you want to learn about life, go watch The Godfather. And it may take you as a surprise, but the rules of business, the rules of morals, things like that apply to these guys. This guy was trying to make his mark, he had to show himself, and he was the new Michael Corleone of, the, of, of uh, Sada. Um, probably never thought you'd hear that mentioned in a, in a Yisa lecture, but um, this is what these guys are. This is a kind of a gangsterism, it's a kind of it's a, it's a very countrywide idea of face. And so when you talk about why they would want the Jews to stay, why they wouldn't want them to leave, it's because this is all how they get along and how they operate. Is there a geopolitical dimension, or this is just... Answer? I think this is internal. It's all very tribal. It's one of the most tribal countries in the world. And as I said, I mean, I, I really wanted to go up to see the Jews of Breda. So it wasn't secure. 
along the route, and the tribal leader said, we're not going to let government troops cross these tribal lines. Can you imagine? It would be like trying to go, I don't know, from, I don't know, New York to Pennsylvania or something, and the governor says, you can't come into our state. Um, it just, you know, and, and, and the government is not really in control beyond um, Sano. Uh, could you comment on Yemen's relations with Saudi Arabia? I was a consultant in Riyadh in the 1980s, and a million Yemeni had all of the low-class jobs in Saudi Arabia. It was very easy to see them because they wore these costume type of clothes but, uh, that were typical but, uh, in their country. And I guess they were there because they represented a great source of money going back to their poor country. Oh, yeah. Does that still exist? Uh, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I was in Saudi Arabia in, in, while I was at state, um, talking about anti-Semitism, but not in relation to Yemen. Uh, I can't recall if I saw a lot of Yemenis there. Um, there was a security threat, too, by the way. Uh, I know that there's a problem. There's a very big, there's a very big problem with Saudis and Yemenis on that on the border. There's a they, they look down. They do look down on the Yemenites, the Saudis, uh, and there's a whole border region that that is in dispute. And that was the border region that the Houthis mix it up with the uh, the Saudi defense forces. Yeah, it's undefined. There's a dotted line. Fairly, it's undefined. Yes, yeah. yes. And that was the area in which they were shooting bombs. Right. Can you discuss your nationality and your religion? Well, I mean, I was there as a representative of the U.S. State Department. I mean, I had a title and I had cards and I had a diplomatic passport. I didn't tell my religion or anything. Saudi, however, you do have to tell me your religion. But uh, I was not required to do that in, uh, in Yemen. But they did know, obviously, I was a State Department special envoy. And it, it's it's interesting to mention that because when I'm thinking about in Saudi and other places, it's amazing. It's amazing what people told me, knowing full well who I was. And I, I was telling Charles this, uh, and the subject is, goes, it, this, goes, this story goes off the subject of Yemen, but I was in Saudi Arabia, and I met a professor, very, she had a PhD, very, very well educated, her flawless English, uh, very well read, inviting uh, me in her home, sat down and she asked me a question. She said, a friend of mine, I knew something was wrong right then and there, a friend of mine wanted to know, do Jews make their pastries with blood? I didn't, that was one of the most extreme comments I heard in my time as a special envoy. But I heard a lot of different things like that that were crazy that it, it just didn't never enter their minds that they're saying they don't know whether I'm Jewish, whether I'm Catholic or whatever I, I am, but I am an American and I am an official of the U.S. government at that time, and they say these things to me that were just breathtaking. So, yes, sir. Are there any hopes for the for the uh, Yemeni Jews? I mean, it sounds like sense. a hopeless situation where eventually they will be either exterminated or. Uh, I, don't, into the I don't think they'll be exterminated. I don't think this I'm is you know, this right. One I think that what they'll do is they'll they'll die off. The older ones will die off. They'll know they just won't go because born there, died there, kind of thing. Um, I think the the younger ones might be converted or they'll leave. There's an immigrant community in London. Uh, they're in New York. 
there's some in Israel. Um, I think they'll just over the generations disappear. The younger ones, I think they want to get out. The older, the older ones want the, the, the very young to get out. I mean, if once you get below, you know, once you get below 100, 200, it's... it's the numbers aren't there. There's nothing. You can't support it. And in fact, a lot of the Jewish, uh, international Jewish aid organizations, for, wrong, for right or wrong, will not support Jewish communities in countries, regardless of where they are, under a certain number. And that is clearly under a number. I mean, we, when we got them aid, we need to, I needed to appeal to them directly, saying, I don't care what your number is, they need X, Y, and Z, send them, this is the place, and we, they did it. But as a practice, it, a number like that starts to become unsustainable. Is there a problem sending assistance? You can get it in. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not impossible. We got it in. We hadn't. We didn't. But they did. It takes a while. I mean, there's FedEx and things like that, but it doesn't happen, you know, overnight. Did they rescue that woman who was forced into the marriage? No. She is. I think there's an understanding that she's kind of. It's hard to say, but they're kind of just writing her off. You know. I mean, a life. Who's writing her? The community. I mean, the community there in Yemen and that which is in New York now. Um, she said in private conversations, because she was also scared that they were being taped, that she didn't want to do this, but that they threatened to kill the father. And so she's very circumspect in how she says it. She doesn't say in a private phone call, I didn't want to do this, they're going to kill me. But, you know, there's ways to say it, ways not to say it. The, the, the very general belief is that she did it, she sacrificed herself. And the thing is with, with uh, conversion, you can't, you can't convert out of Islam because you consider it an apostate. So it's apostasy to, con to reconvert. So once you're in, you're in. So she's kind of out there, gone. She's alive, but I mean, she's... <laughs> Are there any other places, any other countries or sections of countries in the Middle East that are in the same sort of condition as far as numbers? There are the ones I visited: uh, Saudi. There are none, probably. Maybe a few. No, maybe a few quietly on the borders with Yemen or someplace else. There's supposed to be a graveyard in, in Saudi. I've been told. Um, the Jewish graveyard. And of course, history has shown there were always Jews over there. Uh, Morocco, there's about 5,000. Algeria, there's a smaller number. I did not go to Algeria, but I went to Morocco. E Tunisia, I went to, there's about 900 on a place called Jerba, on an island. Um, they're protected, actually, although Al Qaeda's first um, terrorist act after 9 11, I believe, was launched against an ancient Al Griba, the, the ancient Al Griba. Uh, uh, synagogue on that island. I saw it. It was a, it's a beautiful synagogue. Um, about 900 there and several hundred more in, in Tunis. They're fairly well off. They, they survive. Egypt is, if they have less than 50, I'd be surprised. Or more than 50, I'd be surprised. Um, well, so Turkey, there are some. There's 25,000 in Iran, but that's a different issue. Um, Syria. Iraq, 
a rock there are less than I can than I have fingers on my hand, literally. Around there about twenty five thousand. Actually, we're going to show the film on this very issue. Yeah, so I won't go into it anymore. We'll deal specifically with this So, uh, yeah, it's a difficult place to live. Any other questions or comments? Okay, so we're going to wrap it up. We're going to take a break. The food is coming soon, and then we'll start the film in about 20 minutes.